Hello again, friends. It's great to be with you as we gather together to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. My name is Jeremy McCandless, and welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. We're continuing today through our season six journey through the Gospel of Mark. And today we'll be covering a lengthy passage of scripture from chapter 12, verses 13 through to verse 44. And we'll see this lengthy, extensive cross-examination of Jesus continuing. I'm delighted you've decided to be with me here today. And can I mention that if you're here for the first time, then why not, along with everybody else who's listening, make the decision to make the study of the Word of God part of the rhythm of your daily life? doesn't matter whether you're here for the first time, you can pick up where we are now, maybe go back to the beginning of season six in the Gospel of Mark, or you can make the decision to go back over 600 episodes now and decide to do this journey, which if you do it at the pace we're setting at, will take approximately 10 years. This is an in-depth study commitment for 10 years to work through the entire Bible. New episodes are posted every Monday or Friday, but of course people choose to follow along at whatever pace suits and works for them. It's just great to know that you're here with me today. And if you don't want to miss another single episode, then you can just click on that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts from. And that way, you'll never miss another single episode. The Bible Project is hosted on the Bible Project at buzzsprout.com, but it's available on all the main platforms. But if you want to connect to this ministry on a more meaningful, perhaps personal level, then the place to go to is buzzsprout.com because that's where you'll find links to the social network pages. Also, you'll find additional free resources. I always put a full detailed episode notes page and in fact, a full transcript of everything I said is available there on every episode. And you're free to use those resources in whatever way you want, either in your own personal study time or in the preparation of any teaching or even preaching resources that you might want to do. It's all there, freely available for you to use with my blessing in whatever way works for you and I trust with the blessing of the Lord. So if you want to know a little bit more about how we operate, hang around at the end and I'll update you with the outro. But with that all said, I'll say goodbye for now and we'll drop back in and pick up where we left off last time, which is in Mark 12, verses 13 to 44. Okay, friends, here we are. The cross-examination of Jesus is going to continue today. I've noticed that sometimes when prime ministers or presidents have press conferences, the journalists turn up and most of them seem to believe they have the right not only to ask questions, but to challenge everything pretty much that is said. And it seems to me that during this last week of his life on earth, as it turns out we're finding ourselves in now, Jesus will himself will face a constant cross-examination. We saw some of it yesterday, and it will it continues through the text we're looking at today. But in this case, it's not the press that are challenging Jesus, it's the religious and the political leaders of his day. He had to deal with them constantly in this closing period of his ministry time on earth. 
And these guys, they come before him and they've just got one plan in their mind. That's deliberately to try and trip him up and thereby justifying killing him, something that they've decided they wanted to do some time ago. Now, there's much to learn here, not only about how to handle cross-examinations of ourselves as Christian believers, but there's also valuable spiritual lessons that he taught in this passage of how to do that and how to apply it. But before we look at the passage in detail, I just want you to notice before we set into the text that there's going to be three distinct groups of people challenging Jesus. In the opening five verses, it's going to be the Pharisees along with the Herodians together. And then in verses 18 to 27, it's the Sadducees. And then finally, it's going to be the scribes and the teachers of the law. Jesus will deal with questions and objections and a cross-examination from all three groups. And then at the end of the chapter, we'll see there's a closing section where Jesus will turn the tables on them and ask them some important questions and also illustrate the truth he's trying to draw their attention to. So let's pick up the story and we'll do as we always do. I'm going to work through it verse by verse and then at the end we'll try and pull it all together. So the first verse we're looking at today, it begins the narrative by telling us, later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Now remember the Pharisees, these were the people who added the oral law to the written law. And we've met them many times before in this gospel account and in Matthew when we worked through that together some time ago. And these guys are the legalists of their day. Now the other group mentioned here, they're called the Herodians. Have you noticed that? Uh, this is a completely different group. These are in fact the political elite of their day and they are the ones who actually supported Herod and the Romans. So what's fascinating to notice here is that the Pharisees are extremely anti-Roman and the fact that these two groups have come together to attack Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Natural enemies have chosen to band together to do battle with their perceived common enemy, Jesus. Clearly, they must view him as a real threat. Otherwise, why would they come together to do this? And this is what they say. They came to him, reading verses 14 onwards, they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Puh. So it would seem these guys aren't above using flattery to try and ingratiate themselves with Jesus. But they don't mean a word of this. This is all totally insincere, fake flattery. And they're using it to ask him a red-hot political question. And here it comes. The question they say is, Tell us, is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? So that's their question. But the one thing we need to note is the particular way it's phrased. They say, should we pay? Now the word translated pay here is a word that actually means give. In fact, in some translations, it sh says, should we give? You see, the point I'm making here is from their point of view, they were not paying something. They were just giving something to the Romans that they thought was theirs. And one of the reasons they disliked paying this Roman tax was because they had to pay it to Caesar and they had to use Roman coins to pay it. 
And of course, these coins have an image of Caesar on them, and they considered that in itself idolatry. So here they come to Jesus and say, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? This is a trap, because if he says no, then he's in trouble with the Romans. In fact, for saying such a thing, the authorities could immediately have come and arrested him. And if he said yes, they should pay, then he might lose the popular opinion amongst the common people that he had. So it seems no matter what answer he gives, he's going to be in trouble. However, they didn't count on the fact that he was in fact going to say this. Picking up the text, But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And then it adds, And they marveled at him. Now I have to go back to the original King James Version to make what I believe is an extremely important point. Remember I said that back in the opening verse 14, they said, Should they pay? Meaning, should they give? But Jesus uses a different word here that's translated correctly here in the New King James as render. The Greek word render doesn't just mean to give, it means to return, to give back, to restore something back to someone that was something that was theirs. So the Pharisees and the Herodians are saying to Jesus, do we have to give this money to the government? And Jesus is saying, no, you're not really giving them anything, merely returning to them what is due. Caesar's government has been giving you something for this and you are required now to give some of it back. And what that tells me, well, obedience to a political tax system does not in any occasion mean disloyalty to God. Obligations to a government, no matter how flawed, do not infringe on our rights or responsibilities toward God and importantly neither do they condemn us, even if that human government takes that tax money and then spends it inappropriately. We can, of course, and should lobby and declare what our faith prompts us to say about how tax money should be used and spent and also what it should not be used for, but our responsibility stops at that point. So let me say this, just in case maybe you think or have been taught otherwise, the Bible is very clear that we should pay all our taxes. None of us can accept the benefits of living within any state system, no matter how flawed that application of that state system is, and think we can opt out of our responsibilities to pay tax. We may think that government is flawed. We may think that system of government is corrupt and flawed. In fact, come on, let's be honest, the Roman government on Jesus' day was just about as corrupt and as narcissistic and as dangerous and hostile to Christians as any government could be. But at the end of the day, it still brought about a sense of order and security within that society. In fact, it had a name. It was called the Pax Romana, called the Roman priest. And it was that stability that allowed the gospel to spread out across the entire civilized world. So Jesus is simply saying, render not give, render to Caesar, return to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And he uses the image of the Caesar on the coin to make his point. But he then also adds at the same time, but also render to God what is God's. 
Caesar had his image stamped on a Roman coin, but where does God have his image stamped upon? Well, the Bible tells us, and it tells us that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's right back in Genesis chapter 1. So Jesus is saying, give back to Caesar the thing that belongs to him. His stamp of ownership is on that coin anyway, but give back to God what belongs to him, yourself, because his image, his stamp of ownership is on you. So these guys have cross-examined him. They've tried to trip him up, but they failed. And it is this at this point, another member of this theological press corps, this theological cross-examination court, they decide to have a go at him from another angle. And we now are going to hear from the Sadducees, picking up the text in verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, they're giving an example here. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. And it was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven brothers left any children and all married her in turn. Last of all, the woman died. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? since all the seven were married to her. Do you see what's going on here? It's complicated, but let me read for you the opening and the closing verse again. So verse 18 says the Sadducees, and then Mark helpfully puts in parenthesis so we can really recognize what's going on here. He says, those who say there's no resurrection, and they come to Jesus with a question. And then in verse 23, the question they're asking is, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were all married to her? Do you see what's going on here? This group, who don't even believe in the resurrection, bring up a question about the resurrection. Could they have been any more hypocritical? But Jesus' answer to this is brilliant. Jesus replies, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. That's all any of us need, really, friends, isn't it? The scriptures and the power of God. Anyway, the Sadducees were assuming that life today was just going to be life, life like in heaven. That's the assumption they're making here. They're making the mistake of creating heaven based on their image of earth. Now, human beings have always done this. In fact, Native American art shows heaven as a happy hunting ground. In Europe, in the Viking culture, heaven was seen as a place where warriors feasted, Valhalla. It was portrayed as a banqueting place where the fallen warriors would be resurrected to spend their evenings in great banquets, drinking wine from cups made from the skulls of their conquering foes. Nice, isn't it? The Muslims, even at this time, arose, of course, from an impoverished desert people, and they saw heaven as a place of unimaginable luxury where people would relax, replete in splendor, with every physical and bodily pleasure being met. Men, you see, human beings will always make heaven in the image of earth. But Jesus says, you're not getting this at all, you guys. That's what's not going to happen because that's not what heaven will be like. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, he says. They will be like angels in heaven. So he says, you guys don't even understand what heaven's like at all. And anyway, you don't understand even what the, the scriptures teach concerning the resurrection. 
he explains, verses 26 and 27. Now about the rising of the dead, he said, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. So you are badly mistaken. Now, that can seem a little bit complicated, but I'll try and explain what he's doing here. There were many, many passages in the prophetic books of the Old Testament which talk very clearly and plainly about the resurrection. But instead, he chooses to go to a passage in Exodus chapter 3. So why does he do that when it would seem other passages would illustrate it more plainly? Well, the answer is because the Sadducees only respected and accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, as authoritative. So Jesus deliberately selects a passage that they themselves would have to accept as authoritative. And he says to them, Don't you remember back in the burning bush, God said to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That's 3 verse 6, by the way. So maybe you're thinking, well, okay, but what's that got to do with the resurrection? But the important point he's saying to them, look, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you see what's going on here? He's using the present tense, I am, meaning even when these patriarchs had already died physically, they were still alive spiritually somewhere else. The Sadducees, you see, are what we would today theologically call annihilationists. They thought once you were dead, that was it. And what Jesus is doing here, he's using the scriptures, the scriptures that they would accept to rebuke their thinking and to answer the question in the most amazing way. He's using the word of God to demonstrate the power of God, always to correct wrong thinking. This is amazing. We've seen two challenges, two groups of people challenge the Lord and he's dealt with them in an astonishingly powerful and effective way. But there's one more group, another group who want to have their pennies worth. Mark 12, 28. Then one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now I need to stop right away again at this point and say that these teachers of the law are exactly as that name suggests. These are the lawyers of the day and the lawyers are coming to him and asking him to explain the law and tell them what the greatest law is. Now remember it is this group of people, these lawyers, (laughs) they're the supposed experts, they're the ones who codified the Ten Commandments and then extrapolated them out into 613 different rules and regulations and they claim they want to know from Jesus what is the most important. Well let's hear how Jesus answers them. Verse 29. The important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. This is another deeply significant move on the Lord's part. He tells them simply you ought to love the Lord with all that's within you, with all your being. This is not just about loving him emotionally with your heart, but also with your mind. And this tells me, look, it doesn't really matter whether you're smart, like you lawyers, or you're not so smart. 
God has given you whatever intellect you have, but he expects you to bring whatever you have to the altar. And when it comes to understanding and loving God, we just have to give of ourselves. So having told them that, he also adds this caveat, but the important caveat, oh, by the way, he said, you should also love your neighbour as yourself. I think it's helpful if for a moment I digress and give you a scripture from the disciple John said about this in his first letter in terms of the application of love. 1 John 4, 20-21 tells us, Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is in fact a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot then love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love his brother and sister. So John is interpreting and applying this passage directly here. So what we've seen here is Jesus reminds us of the two greatest commandments and how they belong together. These are not two separate things. They are two sides of the same coin. And the scribes and these lawyers, they respond to Jesus in this way. Back in the Mark text, verse 32 and 33 now. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. And to love him with all your heart, and with all your understanding, and with all your strength. And to love your neighbour as yourself. And how that is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. So this group seem to be getting, uh, well, much of this, don't they? They've done better than the other groups, that's for sure. The ones who questioned them earlier. But this still prompts Jesus to say something else. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from there on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So there's no more questions coming. Not surprising, really, how he's dealt with these Pharisees and Herodians, teachers of the law, etc. But notice it was only these guys at the end, the teachers of the law, that Jesus said, You're close to getting it. And he, in effect, commends them, praises them for it. But we need to also remember that being close to the kingdom of God is not quite the same as being in the kingdom of God. So having done that, he does one more thing. He turns around now and he says to them, let me ask you guys a question. Okay, this is Mark 12, 35 to 37. Whilst Jesus was teaching in the temple courtyards, he asked... So this is him replying to the the teachers of the law. Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking in the spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now he's quoting directly from Psalm 110 there. And then Jesus says, David himself called him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd, everyone around, listened to him with delight. Now this is absolutely brilliant. Let me explain. You see, the Jews recognised that the Messiah was coming. And they recognised that the Messiah was this figure referred to throughout what we call the Old Testament as the son of David. They also recognised that one of the key psalms in disclosing the promise of the coming Messiah was the Psalm 110, which Jesus has just quoted. So Jesus is saying to them, you teachers of the law, you know the scriptures, 
And because of that, that's getting you close to the kingdom of God. But let me now get you into the kingdom of God. And he says, you know that Psalm 110 that you always say is talking about the coming Messiah. But have you looked at it carefully, he says? It says that the Lord says to my Lord, so David here, he's talking and he calls this person, this person who is the son of David, he refers to him as the Messiah. He calls him my Lord. How can David say his son will have lordship over him? If he's his son, he would have had authority over him. So in other words, he's saying the fact that David says the son of David is Lord means that he's also by nature, the Messiah is also the Son of God. He's not just a political figure. And remember, David himself was a king. And the only person over a king in that society was God. So if he's referring to him as my Lord, he's definitely saying that this Son of David character is the Messiah. Because he has authority over David, which means he definitely has authority over you guys. Now the crowd, the common people gathered around listening to this, they get it right away, which is why at this point Jesus turns to the crowd and says something to them, verses 38 to 40. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And they have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honour at the banquets. Yet they devour widows' houses, and for a show they make lengthy prayer. These are the men who will be punished most severely. So he's just said to the scribes, you know, you're not far. You're not far from the kingdom of God because of the fact that you know the scriptures and you study them. But at the same time, you're not in it. And because you haven't recognized who the Messiah is and clearly declared in those same scriptures, then you're not actually in. Then at the very same time, he turns to the common people and says to them, beware of these types of people because what they are really after is preeminence in the world. And he then goes on to describe for them and for us, I would suggest generally, how these people will appear uh, before us in the societies in which we live. They will wear long robes, he says, in order that they can be distinguished from the ordinary man in the street. He says they will love to be recognised and receive special greetings in the marketplace. They will love to sit at the most important places, at the dining tables, and to sit in the most important seats, whether that be in the synagogue or the church, and to take advantage of people who are financially struggling and take advantage of them in order to just lord over them. And Jesus says rightly, beware of these people because all they really want to do is be preeminent. And then one final thing, he closes this section off by saying, by telling us Jesus then sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in larger amounts, but then a poor widow came and put two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Look, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into that treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty and put in everything, all she had that she was able to live on. So the Lord here is again using this as an illustration, as a way of saying to those who would choose to listen, 
particularly his close disciples around him, beware of people whose motivation is to be preeminent. Then he says, by, he illustrates it by the situation in front of him, this widow. He says, if you really want to do something significant in the eyes of God, then just be like her and practice sacrificial giving. You see, some give out of all they have and some give only the little bit that they've left over. And that's what he's saying here. Okay, let me try and sum this all up because there's been some huge, huge issues dealt with in this lengthy section of scripture. In the context of the discussion covering the payment of taxes in the resurrection and then most importantly in the commandments. And in all of it, Jesus teaches us how we ought to render to the government what theirs, but to render to God what his and to give to God by loving him, loving our neighbour and giving of ourselves emotionally and sacrificially. So I'd like to summarise everything we've covered like this. If you belong to God, if you recognize Jesus as the Messiah, if you know the scriptures and the power of God in your life, then you should not seek to be preeminent. Instead, you should just wholeheartedly love God and love your neighbors as yourself and sacrificially give and serve for the benefit of others. Too often in life, we see more focused on trying to outdo one another rather than actually serve one another. A rather amusing illustration of this, I once heard the story of a private in the army who went into his major's office. He saluted and said, permission to speak, sir. The major said, just wait a moment, private. I have an important phone call to make. He picked up the phone, pressed a few buttons and spoke. Hello, general. Is that you? I'm just returning your call. I can confirm I will be able to meet you along with the other high-ranking officers at the time you requested. He then hung up the phone and kept the private waiting for another 30 seconds while completing some sort of paperwork before saying, what is it you wanted to say to me, private? The private replied, sir, I've been sent to connect your phone. Beware of those whose motivation is just to seek preeminence. Remember at the beginning of this passage, Jesus said, bring me a coin? And he asked, whose image is on it? Well, the question I'm asking you today is whose image is on you? We all need to remember that we are made in the image of God. Therefore, in that sense, we actually belong to him. And if we really belong to him and acknowledge that, then by believing in his son, Jesus Christ, as the Messiah, as the one he sent as the saviour of our souls, out of that must come the ability to love God and to love our neighbours as ourselves. You know, this passage of scripture covers just about everything that we need to know to live the Christian life. If you can take all of what on board that we've talked about today, you know what? You're not one of those people who are just close to being in the kingdom of God. You're actually in the kingdom of God. When we really know the scriptures, when we really know the power of God, then and only then can we truly humbly submit to the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. So my advice, well, for myself today, for you, for all of us today, is don't be like these scribes. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like the Herodians. Rather, just be like the widow. And if you do that, you'll be just fine. In other words, don't be near the kingdom of God. Be in the kingdom of God.
Okay, people, that is it for today. I'm so glad you've decided to be with me today. My name's Jeremy McCandless, and you've been listening to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Thank you so much. I could not do this without your encouragement and your support. The figures I see of the number of downloads of this podcast going on around the world in over 180 countries is a wonderful encouragement for me to keep pressing on through with this amazing project. I do hope you're benefiting from it. And if you are, a favour I would ask is that you share a link to it on your social media accounts, perhaps do a review and just mention it to other people. Let's give more people the opportunity to bring the detailed study of the Word of God and make it part of the rhythm of their daily lives also because that is what will transform them and will transform the churches and the communities to which they belong. So thank you again for being here. The links that you'll find on the hosting page, which is bibleproject.buzzsprout.com, are links to places like those social media accounts, my personal LinkedIn page, and also the YouTube channel, which is long-term going to become the resource where everything will be placed in playlist format. So you won't need to scroll through hundreds of episodes to find individual things you're looking for. There'll still be audio version podcasts, but YouTube audio is becoming a thing very soon. And I'm already preparing for that to make everything available as a permanent archive, Lord willing. And you'll also find a link to Patreon. If it wasn't for the fact that there's a a group of people who've committed to support this ministry just for anything from a couple of dollars a month, without those people, this teaching wouldn't be able to be free on all the places and platforms that is still freely available. And I'm so thankful for you if you're one of those people. So with that all said, I'll just leave it there today and say thank you again for being with me. And I pray that God has encouraged you through this and has revealed and given you a new insight that you can apply into your lives and into the lives, hopefully, of your family and your friends and the community around you as well. So that said, I do hope I'll see you back here tomorrow or whatever day works for you at the pace that suits you. But it's bye for now from the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye now.